0: Would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? We are at the conclusion of our study through the book of Titus. Titus uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. We're going to read beginning in verse 8 all the way down through verse 15. As I read, please follow along. There in Titus chapter 3, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable. And worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way, see that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, all good things must come to an end. I said, we are now concluding our series through the letter of Titus. It has been a joy to preach this book. I know Jeremy shares in that to study it, to bring its message to you. The tone of the letter of Titus is one of urgency. Paul instructs Titus to accomplish two primary, two main thrusts in his mission at Crete. He wants Titus to appoint godly leadership. He gives very clear instruction on what that godly leadership should look like, what their character should be, their competencies, their content. And he wants Titus to exhort the believers there on the island of Crete, to godly living. Godly leadership must be appointed for the health and the well-being of the church, and there must be exhortation to godly living. This is the thrust of the letter to Titus, and it is an urgent mission, one with much work, danger. It, It requires courage, Discipline. And here at the end of the letter, Paul is going to, in a way, summarize that urgency. He's going to put an exclamation point on that mission of raising up godly leadership and exhorting to godly living. Verse 8 begins. The saying is... Trustworthy. Remember last week we talked about that saying, that trustworthy saying, that saying, that truth, that confession that is worthy of our faith, the gospel. Also seen here in Titus as sound doctrine, that which is true, that which accords with the true teaching of Scripture, the focus of Scripture. Did you know that all of Scripture has as its aim one truth? That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The truth of what God the Father is accomplishing in His Son by the Spirit for His glory. He is making a people for Himself, a people for His own possession, we saw in chapter 2. And who are these people? These people are not deserving people, they are not people who are saved by their own righteousness. They are not worthy people in and of themselves. We saw that in verse 3 of chapter 3. No, these are people who are once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days, living out our days in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, living in discord with others. But, as we saw last week, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his own mercy. It was motivated by his, initiated by his own mercy. He saved us. By the washing of regeneration, the washing of the new birth, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, the new nature given to us by the Spirit of God. That he poured out on us richly in his Son, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified, being made righteous, being declared righteous, being made righteous by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That is the gospel. That is the truth that he says to Titus. Affirm that truth. Teach that truth. Appoint godly leaders that will protect and lead the people of God in that truth, that sound doctrine. And then as a result of that sound doctrine, as a result of that truth of the gospel, lead them to godliness. And this is what he says. Affirm these things. That's the content of these things. These things includes both The indicatives of the gospel and the imperatives that come with the gospel. You see, we are not saved by good works. We've just seen that. We're not saved because we're good. We're not saved by works of righteousness that we have done. But we are saved to good works. We are saved to perform good works. As Ephesians 2 says, "...for by grace are you saved through faith." That not of yourselves is the work of God. It's a gift of God. Not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. For we, verse 10 says of Ephesians 2, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here's the first point this morning. God's grace In the gospel, the gospel of grace results in good works by God's people. The gospel of grace results in good works by God's people. Again, Paul wants Titus to affirm confidently, to insist on these things, the indicatives, the truths of the gospel of grace and its imperatives. Helpful for us to understand what he's wanting is to remember. We did this a few weeks ago, but it's important for us to remember this again. Remember Israel. Do you remember the people of Israel? Do you remember the people of Israel that God redeemed from Egypt through the Exodus? God saved a people for himself By mighty signs and wonders. Have you you ever thought about how God saved his people from Egypt? If God just wanted to deliver them, he could have done that. He could have wiped out the Egyptians quickly. He could have done that without even lifting a finger. But God did so in a way. He accomplished the salvation of his people in such a way as to leave no doubt as to who he was. To, To make a statement... Regarding his power and his authority, he saved his people in mighty power. And then, as he led his people out of Egypt, and he led them out to the mountain of Sinai, the Mount Sinai, he gives them there a law. He gives them instruction on how to live. God's people who are redeemed by His might, by His power. He gives those people instruction for living. He wants them to live a certain way. Why does He want them to live a certain way? Because they are His people. Deuteronomy 4, 5-8. through 8. Gives the reason succinctly. It says, see, verse, verse 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them. This was to Israel. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the people's who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You see, what, what was God's instruction meant to accomplish? As his people, as his redeemed people live out the imperatives, the commands, his instruction, they are a reflection of him to the nations. and causes the nations to stop and ask themselves the question, what, what, what kind of people is this? What kind of God do they serve? The imperatives of the gospel, they are our testimony. To the lost world. Our godliness. Is a means that God uses to reach lost sinners. See Israel is not unconnected to us. They as God's people serve as our paradigm. They, they serve as our illustration. We are God's people. Do you see that God has saved us for the very same reason He saved Israel? God has saved us. Only now, we were not saved through miracles and plagues. We were saved by the greatest sign that has ever been the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is our salvation. And now, as was promised to Israel, we unlike Israel, have been given the ability by His Spirit with the new nature He has given us and the new heart He has placed within us, we have been given the ability to obey His instruction. To actually live out in obedience the imperatives of the gospel. We've been delivered not from Egypt, but we've been delivered from sin By the powerful working of our Savior, Jesus Christ, on the cross and in His resurrection. We are God's people who have been given His Spirit, a new heart, to serve and to testify to His great salvation, that which has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. If it was important, this this is good, if it was important for Israel to obey because they were His people, if it was important for Israel to obey so that the nations could see the might and power and truth of who God was, if it was important for Israel to obey in that salvation, how much more is it important for us to obey if we've been saved by Jesus Christ? How much more is it important that we, as God's people, obey? We are not saved because of our righteousness. We are saved to righteousness. We are saved to godliness. We are saved to obedience. The gospel of God's grace should never be used as an excuse to disobedience. If you are using God's grace as a comfort to you to persist in your disobedience, you are misusing the gospel. The gospel is not a comfort to us to persist in disobedience. It is an impetus. It is a motivation. The gospel is a motivation to obedience. Yes, I need forgiveness daily. And God gives it freely in Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful for that truth. But when we realize that forgiveness that has been given to us, that should compel us, that should motivate us to obedience this is our mission as God's people. We are the ones who carry His truth. We are the ones who have been saved by His grace. And so the Gospel comes with imperatives. This, this is made clear throughout the book of Titus. This is what He wants for us as His people. To live out the commands of Scripture. As we said a few weeks ago, did you know the imperatives, the commands of Scripture, are in full force for us as God's people? We are to obey. And now He's given us the opportunity, the ability to obey. This is our mission, to be His obedient people. Now look at what verse 8 continues to say. Paul tells Titus, he says, I want you to insist on these things, both the indicatives of the gospel and the imperatives of the gospel, so that those who have believed in God, those who have faith in God, in the gospel, may be careful to devote themselves to good works. I want to point out to you very quickly that that little phrase be careful to devote yourselves to good works. That teaches us this morning that holiness or godliness is done with intention, is pursued with intention. Holiness, godliness doesn't just happen. It must be intentional. We must be, as Paul says to Titus, they must be careful. They must fully engage their mind. We must be pursued with intention. You're not going to happen into good works, into godliness. We must set our attention on it, to focus on it, to dwell upon it. Devoting ourselves to good works starts with the mind that is fully engaged on God's purpose for us. Do you see why it's important? Do you see how it's important that we spend our time wisely? How do you spend your time? What is it that occupies your mind? What is it that you spend your time thinking about or amusing yourself with? Why are we so distracted in what we use our time for? Do you think That what you use your time for will lead you to godliness? It's an important question. Is what you spend your time meditating on and thinking about, is that going to lead you to godliness? Listen, I am not trying to be a legalist this morning. I believe your righteousness is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, not in any works that you do. But listen... How much time, and I'm meddling a little bit here, but how much time do you spend thinking about Star Wars? How much time do you think about your favorite sports team? How, how much time do you spend thinking about politics? And we could go on and on, could we not? our, our, our you going to be led into godliness by what you spend your time thinking about? Godliness and holiness will only be pursued or should only be pursued with intention. You will not happen into holiness. You must pursue it intently. How do you structure your days? What do you spend time reading? What do you spend time watching? You should always have that question in your mind. Is this leading me to godliness? Can I give God thanks for this? Is there anything wrong with watching a baseball game? I hope not. But how much time and how much of my energy does it occupy? This is an important question. To pursue the goal of godliness is first a discipline of the mind. A discipline of the mind to be filled with the truth concerning Jesus. What He has done. What He has accomplished. What He has accomplished on our behalf in His death and resurrection. Who we are in Him. It's a discipline of the mind filled with the truth of where Jesus is even now. Where is Jesus now? What is He doing now, right now, at this very moment, on behalf of His people? Filling our mind with these truths. This is where godliness and holiness and good works begin. A discipline of the mind filled with the truths of Jesus Christ, who He is and what He's accomplished and what He's doing. This must be what our minds are set upon. And then it follows the act of the will. follows what our mind is focused on. We talked about faith last week. Remember, there are three parts of faith. Saving faith. There is first knowledge. And then there is agreement. And then there is an entrusting to, an application of. This is what faith is. I know the gospel. I agree with the gospel. And then I entrust my, it's an act of the will to entrust myself to that gospel. And live in light of it to apply it to my life. And this is what we're called to do as his people. Because of the salvation that has been accomplished by the Father through the Son, it is my purpose and delight to live, as chapter 2 told us in the book of Titus, to live a self controlled, upright, and godly life. This intention to devote oneself to good works also must be learned. It is done with intention and discipline. And it also must be learned. Look at the very end of our passage in Titus 3. Titus 3, verse 14. Paul is giving final instructions uh, to Titus there. And in the middle of it, verse 14, he says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. This pursuit of good works is something that must be learned. This is is discipling. The word learn there is connected to our word for discipling, making disciples. We must encourage one another and learn together how to live out good works, to devote ourselves to good works. So as to help cases of urgent need, there's a practicality to it. There's a real life application that our lives would be useful and profit. So this is the idea of discipling or helping others to become learners of Christ. Putting on the person, the life of Christ in this situation is taking uh, care of urgent needs so as to not be unproductive, unproductive or unfruitful. Our good works are to have usefulness for the benefit of others. And this this is what's included in the idea of good works. When we think about the term good works, what is included? It is godly living. It is holiness, the pursuit of holiness. It is sanctification and pursuing sanctification. It is behavior, outward behavior that adorns the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is what he calls us to These things, he says, are excellent and profitable for people. There at the end of verse 8. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Your life, this this is the end of the first point, okay? Your life is a testimony to the saving grace of God. Your life has purpose. Your life has profound meaning. It is a testimony to the saving grace of God. No matter what arena you find yourself occupying or what purpose, what calling you have, no matter your station or circumstance, you have been called to display the transforming grace and power of God. And therefore, you could have no more important calling than where you find yourself right now. Have you ever ever struggled with that, thinking that the grass is greener on the other side? If only I had this, if only I was able to achieve that, maybe my life would count for something. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ... No matter where you are, no matter what station or circumstance you are in, there is no higher calling than you could be called to than where you're at right now. You are called to display God's transforming grace. This is really important for, as I think about it, for mothers who are at home with their children, who feel like the important world is passing them by, all the important things are happening out there, where everybody gets to leave their house. And be involved with the important things of life. What usefulness do I have here? What purpose do I have here? The gospel tells you that you have much importance in your home. We saw that in chapter 2. To be lovers of your children. To be lovers of your husband. To keep your home. Why? To display the transforming grace of God in his gospel. That's your purpose. That's your mission. There's nothing greater that you could be called to. This adornment of the gospel, this attractiveness, this beauty that we give to the gospel by our godliness and good works, this is profitable. It's useful. It's beneficial for people. Who is it? Who is it talking about? What people? Well, it's it's useful. It's profitable for everyone. Most specifically, it's profitable. For those who stand opposite to those that have believed in God, to those who are in the faith, it's profitable to those who are outside, to those who are lost and do not know God. As we read earlier in Deuteronomy, this is God's people living in a way to display who He is to a lost world. God's grace then results in good works. By God's people. And therefore, verse 9, God's people are to avoid teaching that distracts from that gospel of grace. If sound doctrine produces good works, bad doctrine and bad teaching undermines good works. It undermines godliness. God's grace should result in good works by God's people. Therefore, God's people are to avoid teaching that distracts from the gospel of grace and its effects upon our lives. If teaching and preaching the truths of God's grace produces godliness, then entangling ourselves with teaching that distracts or undermines it would lead us to ungodliness or, or a lack of profit for the world around us, a lack of transformation. Lives that do not adorn the gospel. Now here Paul gives a list of four issues or types of teaching to avoid. These are specific to the context of Titus. These are specific to the false teachers we find in chapter 1. Look at his description there of these types of teaching. He says, but avoid foolish controversies. Literally, stupid controversies. I know a lot of families, you're not supposed to use that word. I get it. But that's what it means. Moronic, empty, stupid, foolish controversies. Avoid them. These are controversies lacking intelligence or sense. These types of debates don't lead to spiritual health and growth. They are of no consequence for what truly matters. If they can be understood, and more often than not, they cannot be. I'll tell you, when someone engages me in this type of debate, and it happens all the time. People want to talk about things that just don't matter. I just simply ask them, okay, okay, let's just suppose that you're right in what you think. Let's just suppose you're right in your view. What does that change? What does it change about anything? How does that help someone to Christ? How does that help you in your godliness? And in the call upon your life to pursue holiness? How does that help? You see, a foolish debate is not motivated by a desire to see someone grow. A foolish controversy is motivated by a desire to be right or to be acknowledged as a person in the know, to be exalted in the eyes of other people. He goes on to say avoid genealogies, genealogies, lists of tribal ancestry or family lineage, that leads to some kind of spiritual significance these breed all types of questions first and second Timothy talks about these as well all types of questions of curiosity that can't ever be verified or confirmed endless genealogies producing all manner of debate and curious fixations dissensions conflicts strives verbal altercations over words and unimportant issues. Quarrels about the law. Remember that the false teachers here in Titus were Judaizers. They sought to bring people into adherence regarding certain aspects of the law. Minutia. Things that no, no longer were in effect. And this caused no small disruption to the work of the gospel that preached Christ as the fulfillment of the law for us. Paul tells the people there On Crete, avoid these types of teachings and teachers. At the heart of these issues, do you see at the heart of these issues is this spirit of contention and conflict, debate and argument. That's what's really at stake. These debates and arguments lead away from the truth. They lead away from the truth and they rob you of precious time that should be spent on pursuing godliness, on applying the gospel, on being a witness to the world. They rob you of that time that can't be used for profit. You remember Tevye? You remember the fiddler on the roof? I love Tevye. He wanted to be a rich man. Why? For a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons he wanted to be a rich man is so that he could sit seven hours every day and debate, debate the good book, pray in the synagogue. And he said, if I was a rich man, people would come to me and ask me questions that would cross a rabbi's eyes, and it wouldn't make a difference if I was right or wrong, because when you're rich, they think you really know. That's why he wants to be a rich man, because he wants to be involved in debates and questions that have no real answer. They just waste time. You remember, as he sits in the courtyard and debates questions with all of the other men in the town, and he loves it. This is the heart of one who is caught up and engaged and engages his time and energy into foolish questions, genealogies, dissensions. And quarrels about the law. They are no good. They are without profit. They are worthless. They aren't good for usefulness. They waste our time. They don't do anybody any good. Principally, now now these particular words and phrases have to do with the false teaching going on in Titus. But principally for us, this would apply to us even in issues that to us don't seem unimportant, but are held in such a way as to distract from the truth. Did, did you know it's possible to be so passionate and so fixated on something that, that on some level has importance, but in the way that you are fixated on it and the way that you, you dwell upon it, It serves to distract from the gospel. Let me say it really plainly, simply. There are a lot of things that you can spend your time thinking about in the Bible that are just not as important as the gospel. There are a lot of questions and debates and theologies. A lot of things that you can spend your time debating about. I I went to seminary. I, I sat in seminary classes where guys would love to debate things that at the end of the day don't actually matter. But how much time is spent and energy is spent instead of uniting around the truths of the gospel and dwelling on its application to our lives. You, you never reach an end. You never reach an end to pursuing godliness. Ever. Ever. If you committed yourself to dwelling and preaching and speaking the gospel to yourself daily and living out and applying it to your life, you would never have free time on your hands. It would take all of your time. We don't have time to think about all these peripheral things. A few questions for you that I think it would be good for you to apply to your life and ask yourself even now. Can I ask you, ma'am, can I ask you, sir, what do you spend your time digging into? What do you spend your time digging into or, or researching? How much time do you spend doing that? Do you read or listen to sources that lead you to godliness or just, fuel, and fan the flames of contentiousness. Do you spend time responding in the comments to things that you don't agree with? I did that once. Three hours later, I thought, what have I done with the last three hours? I'm not kidding. It was something I said, well, that's not right. I got I to correct that. I got to fix it. And then three hours later, all my time was gone. Was I godlier? No, I was a lot angrier. How many of us get caught in such foolish debates. Are you able to discern? Here's another question for you. Are you able to discern between the varying levels of doctrinal importance? Do you have categories We call them in our membership material, we call them tiers, levels. There is first-level importance, right? There's first-level doctrine, there's second-level doctrine, and then there's tertiary doctrine or teaching. First-level, secondary, and tertiary. Do you have the the wisdom to see the difference between those three? Or is everything for you a first-level issue? And fight about things that really are secondary or possibly even third level. I have a list in my head of all the things we could bring up this morning, right? I was raised in churches that, that made whole, whole sermon series out of tertiary issues. No joke, I've heard whole sermons preached on what a pulpit should consist of. You don't have glass pulpits. Seriously, a whole sermon on whether or not you should have a glass pulpit. We could spend time thinking about all those things, but you know know what I'm talking about. Let me give you one example. This is one that I think kind of catches us sometimes. Do, Do you fixate on an issue like the timing of eschatological events? Do you fixate on that? Is that something that you spend a lot of time thinking about? The timing of the rapture. Now, is that unimportant? No. There's importance there. There should be, at some level, an understanding or some kind of opinion or some kind of conviction uh, gained. But is this something that we divide over? No. Is it something that is worth inordinate amounts of my time thinking about? No. Why? Because we know this Jesus is returning. And when he returns, he's the king. And when he returns as the king, he is going to judge the wicked. And he's going to take his people to himself. We know this. And so why spend our time debating and dividing and being contentious with one another over something that is not central in importance? And then, let, me, let me ask this question. Are you using godly men and women? As we saw in chapter 2 of Titus, are you using godly men and women? Are you using godly leaders as your aim and pattern for life? Here's what I mean with this. If those who are godly and are more mature than you, if they don't see this as a primary issue, you probably shouldn't make it a primary issue. Lean upon those who are farther along in their Christian life. Lean upon them. I, I talk to a lot of young men who have great angst over things that I have just learned are not that important. And they don't understand how I can't think that's, it's that important. How can you not think this is important? I said, well, i just been around a little bit longer and I realize that's not all that important. Just trust me on that. Are you using godly men and women to aim your life as a pattern for your life? God's people must be a people of good works because they've been saved by the gospel of grace. Therefore, God's people must reject teaching that distracts them from that gospel, that distracts, from, distracts them from that grace and from its effects upon our life. And lastly, the church of God must remove those who persist in divisiveness. Now this is not a note that you would choose to end a letter on. It's exactly where Paul ends his letter. Because we have been saved by grace, because we've been called to to pursue godliness and good works that are profitable and excellent, we must reject teaching that distracts from that gospel, and we must remove those who persist in divisiveness. Literally, it says here, those who are factious, those who are stirring up division, The direct reference is, again, to those that would have been false teachers or holding to that teaching found in chapter 1. Those who are persisting in that teaching, though they've been warned. But principally, again, it applies to anyone who subverts the gospel and its unity by their fixation on worthless opinions, worthless teaching. Let's look at the character of this person real quick. You want to know who this person is? The character of this type of person, the factious person, Did you know the factious person, this is important, the factious person does not see themselves as factious. The factious person, the divisive person, does not see themselves as divisive. They do not see themselves as a person who stirs up division, but rather, they are a person who has reached a spiritual level of enlightenment. They understand the deeper things. They've studied They've, they've asked questions and made observations that others just aren't making. They view themselves as an asset to the church. If only they would listen to me. A check against the uninformed teachers, the uninformed leadership, or even faulty, bad leadership. They are, in their own minds, the Martin Luther of their time. You think I'm exaggerating? A few months ago, I sat down with a young man and he was bringing to me, again, another worthless debate that had nothing to do with, with anything important. And he, he even made that statement to me, how important this was, that no one, here's what he said, no one is seeing this. So I just, I just turned it back. I said, so you're saying everyone, everybody in the church, everyone has missed this. Yes. No one sees this. Everyone is, is missing this. I said, do you understand the arrogance of what you're saying? Do you understand the arrogance? But you know a divisive person doesn't see the arrogance? They don't see the arrogance of what they're saying. For them, this is a fight for the right. This is a fight for the truth. And I said, you, friend, are not Martin Luther. And this is his response. He said, how do you know I'm not? I might be. And the conversation was over. That's how they view themselves. In reality, they are arrogant and blinded by selfish ambition. Paul says it succinctly. He says they are warped. Warped. They've perverted their way. Instead of following the path of the gospel of grace to godliness and to holiness, they've perverted their way. Turned aside from the truth, as we saw in chapter 1. They are persisting in their sin. They are ongoing in their sin. And they have been warned twice. We are to go to them and warn them. And then we are good to go to them a second time. And then, after warning them once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them. They are self condemned, they've locked their own cage. They've signed their own death certificate. It's no one's fault but their own. They have led themselves into this trap. And the church is to remove them. Why? Doesn't that seem a little bit harsh? Doesn't that seem a little bit unloving? Isn't that a difficult way to end the letter? Isn't there something more positive we could end on than church discipline? But I do see this. As a fitting end to this letter, remember the urgency of what Paul is giving the churches here to do, of Titus to do. Godly leadership and godly living. This this must be done, Titus, for the protection of the gospel, for guarding the gospel. And so this is a fitting end to this letter He encapsulates once again the two main thrusts of the letter. The godly leadership which will exhort to godly living and by extension be courageous and loving enough to confront and discipline those who oppose the gospel in their teaching and in their lives. Do you see discipline of the divisive person as loving? It's a good question. Do you see discipline of a divisive person as loving? Now, now here's the thing. None of us sees ourselves as divisive. Like like nobody in the pew this morning, in the chairs this morning, sees yourself as a divisive person. But all of us have the potential to be that divisive person. All of us. It doesn't take much to get ourselves off the path, to harden ourselves in that path, to pervert the way, to persist in our sin. Discipline then is is a loving act to try to rescue people from that way, to try to rescue them from their perversion and their sin. Discipline is loving. Don't you want me to come after you if you're perverting your way? Don't you want me to come after you? Don't you want me to do something? Or would you want me to just let you go on? Because, frankly, I care more about myself and more about what you think of me than about your own soul. Discipline is loving. It's loving to the sinner. Loving to the one who's perverted in their way. Who's turned from the truth. Loving to the one who is so confused and backwards in what they think is important. It's loving also to the one sinned against or those who are in harm's way what kind of church would we be? What kind of pastor would would I be? What kind of elders would you have if we didn't stand and say, no, no, you're not going to spread that junk here. We're not going to have anybody else go after you in this perversion. It's loving to the ones in harm's way. It's loving to the name of Christ, to the glory of Christ in the gospel. Right, the, the the gospel of grace leads to good works, which are a benefit, a profit to the world, the lost world. When we allow division and disunity, fixate on these unimportant matters, it leads to ungodliness, which then distorts the picture. Therefore, it is also loving to the mission of the church. It's loving to those that are lost who need the gospel. They need to see God's redeemed people pursuing holiness and righteousness and godliness. And we must protect that testimony. Discipline is loving. As a loving father, disciplines his children because they are hurting themselves. This is the tone of the discipline found here and other places in Scripture. I I think it's important for us to ask ourselves again, what am I spending my time dwelling upon? What am I pursuing? Am I pursuing God's purpose that He has given me in the Gospel? Am I fixating on these things that do not tend to godliness? What kind of podcasts am I listening to? What kind of sermons am I watching? What do I spend my time feasting And feeding my soul on. And I think it's important for us to ask the question, am I I a divisive person? And not just a couple of you need to ask that. All of us need to ask that. Am I divisive? Am I seeking unity around the gospel? Or am I divisive making mountains out of molehills and leading people astray, wanting people to see me and exalt myself? and then as he gives parting instructions verse 15 and this this will close paul says all who are with me send greetings to you greet those who love us in the faith do you see the the catholicity in that the catholicity in that statement what's going on on the island of crete is part of a bigger movement, a wider work of God. They are not the only ones who are carrying out this mission. They are part of the church that spans across the globe to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, and to pursue godliness as a testimony to the saving, transforming power of God. And at the end, he says, grace be with you all. And with this, we agree with Paul. We have that same prayer, grace be with you all. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word and its instruction for us. We are thankful that we are indeed your people. We are saved by your grace to good works to pursue holiness and righteousness and godliness, I pray that even today, this afternoon, we would, we would do some accounting of our own pursuits. Are we pursuing godliness and good works? Are we renouncing sin, sinfulness? What we intake, what we spend our time meditating on, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves clearly, truly, as we ask ourselves these questions. And I pray for us as a church, as we uh, seek to keep each other on the way, as we seek to keep each other fastened to the way, to the gospel, and provoke one another to love and good works. I pray that you'd give us courage to say the difficult word, I pray that you would give us courage and constancy, faithfulness in this task. I do pray for godly leaders to be raised up here that can lead your people under your leadership. And that we would be given to this task of exhorting one another to godly living. And we pray for this work to be accomplished not just here, but at Faith Bible Church and other churches that are preaching your word here in Spokane, in Spokane Valley, in this region. And Lord, we thank you that we are a part of something that's so much bigger than what's happening here at Trinity. We are part of something that you are accomplishing across this world, across this globe, as you're raising up congregations around your gospel who are faithful in pursuing you. Keep us from being distracted Keep us on the way, we pray now for your glory and your name. Amen.